0: This is episode 95 of the Travel Writing World podcast. And as you'll remember from the previous episode, we're publishing a few of Bill Colgrave's interviews here on Travel Writing World. Today is the first interview out of four, this one with Tony Wheeler, who, along with his wife Maureen, founded Lonely Planet. Let's listen in.
1: Scraps of Wool podcast, we're talking today about travel literature, travel writing, travel stories, and how the genre has entertained and excited us, and what we've learned from it. And I'm talking to Tony Wheeler, who created the Lonely Planet business. He was in London in 1970, and he and his wife, maybe his future wife, Maureen, left London and travelled all the way to Australia overland and they wrote a book as a result of that and that was the beginning of the Lonely Planet business. Now some 45 years later Tony has just returned to London, of course been back many times in the meantime, but he's done so also by car and come all the way from Bangkok. So, Tony, why didn't you start by just telling us how those two journeys
2: compare? they compared in all sorts of ways, because the the trip we did in 72 was along, as you said, the Overland Trail. That's what we referred to it as. And these days, it's called the Hippie Trail. it's, It's, you know, featured in all sorts of things from the 60s. And, Although we didn't call it the Hippie Trail at the time, that's certainly what it became. And this time, travelling in the opposite direction, we followed the Silk Road. And of course, the Silk Road has been around forever, Marco Polo beat the trail of nearly a thousand years ago and these days it's suddenly become big business the the chinese are talking constantly about obor one belt one road and the the silk road is actually the belt rather than the road and they're doing quite a lot to promote it
1: and you started in bangkok but then you went eastwards for a long way and went up to Beijing.
2: Yeah, we, we started off up through Southeast Asia. So it was Thailand, mm-hmm. Cambodia and Laos and then into China. And then we did travel east. We went all the way east as far as Shanghai. Yeah. Then north up to Beijing. And then at Beijing, we sort of turned west and kept going westward all the way to London. And you, so
1: then you're going for days and days through the Gobi.
2: Yeah, well, it was a remarkably changeable Changeable terrain, you know. D- down in the in the south, in Southeast Asia, you're in jungle and it's lush and wet and humid. Mm. And then we were in very mountainous country for a good week or ten days in China before things seemed to level out. And then at your west, and you do go through the Gobi Desert, but not as much of it as I expected. I think you have to get further north before you really get into the long stretches of the Gobi. And I was really, su- I was constantly surprised by the terrain. And we, as we got towards the western extremities of China, it was much lusher and greener and more mountainous than than I was expecting. It was like we'd come out of the desert and gone into the mountains.
1: I remember taking the, the train across the Gobi about 20 years ago, but I'd come the other way, across crossed from Pakistan across the Kunjarab Pass, found somebody who managed to get me up to Kashgar And I was really trying to get to Larsa, but I didn't know how to do it. And eventually I swapped my driver for a plane ticket to Urumqi and then got on the train and I think we were four days on that train but we didn't know where to get off because all, all the signs were in Chinese. Nobody could tell us when we got to the place where you got off to go to Lhasa.
2: And of course there was no train to Lhasa in those days. And of now, course
1: no, that train didn't exist.
2: No, so there, now of course there is a train yeah. and there is a road you know, more or less directly from Kashgar to, to Lhasa but I know the Chinese are very keen on you using that road
1: yeah i want to take that journey under the taclamacan sometime the same journey that uh Peter Fleming talks about in News from Tartary. Yes, indeed. So you go underneath that and then back up
2: on ah, the eastern so, side. So many routes. Mm-hmm. I, I did the Kunjurab pass trip up to Kashgar about three or four years ago. And this trip we sort of travelled north of Kashgar, so the routes never actually intersected. And the only place, the only time I've seen a Rumchi was flying there like you.
1: Okay, I remember coming off the, I loved being at the top of the Kunjarab. Just down above Pirali, where you could see out and you felt the sort of whole of Asia was in front of you.
2: Well, you've crossed and, the Himalaya and, and, at this point, Do you know, and, and you've
1: you got could, up to the top. Or the Karakoram, and you can just see on the left somewhere you think is the Vakan Corridor, and the whole place is open. And then you get down, and then we were traveling, I should, oh, for such a long time. My Norwegian friend who was with me, after um, about 14 hours, she turned to me, she said, Bill, Do you think we're still alive? Is it possible we've died and this is purgatory?
2: (laughs) I think it's much more likely to have been purgatory than heaven in that region. So, you, you, did you go to Kashgar? No, we didn't go to Kashgar on this trip. We we skirted around Urumqi and then we we crossed into Kazakhstan yeah. north of Kashgar. So this trip um when I did go to Kashgar a few years ago it was really too late. It was the Chinese have really wrecked Kashgar. Yeah. Kashgar is not what it used to be when you went there.
1: No, I mean then it was it, it, the old Kashgar market was there, and we all we, the only place you could stay in was that that uh, old British consulate, We t- turned into a sort of four-person hotel. Yeah. But apparently they they have since recreated Kashgar as it was in the seventies.
2: Well, they've done a little bit of sort of cosmetic work on it, oh. but it's not very attractive.
1: Okay. So did you go down into Afghanistan then?
2: In the 70s, we came through Afghanistan. We, we went, you know, in from Iran mm. and down to Kandahar and up to Kabul and out. And I went back to Afghanistan about 10 years ago and went all round really, except to Kandahar. I didn't go to Kandahar. Yeah. But I was up in the north at mazar sharif and and in the center at Bamiyan. But... Um,
1: in, the, in the 70s?
2: No, no, no I was more, more recently. In oh. 2007 or so, I was in Afghanistan. Oh, were you? Yeah. just about, mm. Funnily enough, Colin Thuberon, in his um, Silk Road book, he talks about going through Afghanistan and having a driver who was driving him. And it was the same driver I had. I recognize the name, Mubin. Really nice guy, actually. I, I spent about oh, two weeks with him.
1: I was in there... I was in the, in the up in the fakhan in 2007 I think it was yes it was but we came into Afghanistan through ishkashim came down through uh, through Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan yeah and then crossed the river into Ishkashim, turned left, straight up the Vakan. Yeah,
2: well, I've never been to the Vakan. I've been close to it, but never actually been there. Well, you were
1: probably sitting around in Balkh at the same time.
2: Well, I went to Balk. yeah. Balkh was a wonderful place. I really I really enjoyed that.
1: I'd like to and, do and that. Tajikistan
2: was the one of the, the single Stan we didn't go to on this trip. We went to the other four ex-Soviet Stan's.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, Tajikistan, the the GBAO, the Gorno-Badakhshan region, is is magnificent. But I mean, that is mainly Pamirs. It's yeah, it's, yeah. it's much the same as the Vakan, but with bit but lower. Yeah. So we better talk a little bit about our but about the travel books. You, Tony, have been one of the most helpful people in um, introducing me to some of the books that we've got to celebrate. Scraps of Wool, um, published by Unbound, this year. 2017 is is really a celebration of the literature which has inspired us and I've gone to all sorts of people to ask them to tell me the books that really excited them and you've been most most helpful in giving me books that I really wouldn't have um have, may not have known about and and hadn't read um, amongst them, um, Raja Shihadeh's Palestinian walks, which I'd never come across, I was just delighted um, to read that, um, and uh, and uh, Arctic Dreams by Barry Lopez, which is now I think one of my one of my very most favourite books.
2: Very uh, poetic, isn't it? Yes, it is. It, 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 it really is. does capture that whole northern region very well. I think, in a way,
1: he's rather. Um, having read him and then started to read some of the more modern writers, you know, there lots of people talk about travel writing being, every generation says travel writing's finished because they don't realise that the classics of tomorrow are being written today. And um, I think Barry Lopez seems to have created a new genre of travel writing where He's learning from the land rather than telling us what, what, what is in the place. He's just letting it teach him. Robert McFarlane is a bit the same. Do you oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's
2: very much that way.
1: You've come across him, yes. I'm a most impressive guy. But you started, I think you, you amused me by saying, when actually the first travel book that you ever got you excited was Swallows and Amazons. <laughs>
2: And I, I would still say that, you know, it's, uh, it's it was a great great children's book. And not only the actual sort of adventures on those Scottish lakes, but the maps. The maps were wonderful. There were these little mud maps, you know, yeah. sort of childish sketches. And you thought, oh, I want to go to that island. I want to sail out there and camp the night or whatever. It was... Yeah,
1: me too. I, mean, I was exactly
2: the same. I loved
1: that thing. And it's just the feeling of, of it, that being the sort of enemy territory on the other side. Yeah. Do you dare going there? My was um, was actually not swallows and amazons. It was a a book about a bear called Mary Plain, and Mary Plain's big adventure was when she got dropped out of an aeroplane onto a Caribbean island.
2: <laughs> not ideal territory for a bear, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so I started from uh, the first travel books that have inspired people. And I started to look for travel writers that themselves have been inspired. And I think, um, I mean, Dervla Murphy is certainly, certainly one of those. I love her, her little bit. One of the great, great sentences from travel writing must be, when she writes, on my 10th birthday, I was given a bicycle and an atlas. And a few days later, I decided to travel to India, <laughs> to cycle to India. That, that was at the beginning of, 19, of December 1941. And on the 14th of January 1963, I started to cycle from Dunkirk to Delhi. <laughs> Is that lovely? Perfect that, perfect. that is. And the other one you introduced me to was uh, was Judith Shalansky. I think you wrote to me that, that, that the atlas of, of remote oh, islands. Isn't
2: it? Wonderful book. I've, I've given away more copies of that book than just about anything else. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, and she, she starts at the very beginning by saying, these are a, a bunch of islands I've never been to and never will go to. And never will. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's armchair travel of the purest sort. And, of course, anybody you give that book to, they, if they're travellers, they immediately come back on how many of those 50-odd islands. Is it 50 islands? I forget. Yeah. yeah. 50 Mm. they've been to yeah and I think I've been to seven or eight of them so I have 40 odd to go and a friend of mine who's been who's very well traveled I think had been to 14 but it still leaves a lot of islands I'm amazed that there is anybody who's been to 14 of those
1: islands <laughs> yeah well, I, I think I've been to 110 countries, and I'm unfortunately, I think I'm in the presence of somebody who's probably been to many, many more than that.
2: Well, I, I have been to more than that; it's true. But then you have to argue about what makes a country and what makes yeah. a visit to a country. And you know, a lot of people say you can only say you've been there if you stayed overnight. To which I think that's to, fair. Well, I don't know. I mean, the only how can you visit the Vatican City unless the Pope invites you to stay overnight? A
1: fair point. I'm not certain if I actually included the Vatican City.
2: <laughs> well, it's a country, and. The I think if you have sort of looked up at the Sistine Chapel and you've looked out on St. Peter's, you've been to the Vatican City, but staying overnight, not easy. No, no, I haven't. <laughs> I have not. What was it my friend who used to write for us at Cadogan Guides
1: had said about about Rome, um, faith was invented here but believed elsewhere. <laughs> um, so, th- So the... Uh, the people, the the people who who there's the group of people, who knew they were travellers before they even started, and um, Shalansky, certainly La Murphy, and uh, Joseph Conrad, of course.
2: Yes, absolutely. I Did mean, it his. I, I think one of the points I made was that there's quite a few novels that are really travel books. You know, there you could almost discover more about travel by reading the book, the, the novel, than you could by reading some travel book, which ostensibly covers the same territory.
1: Yeah, well, Heart of Darkness is really, I mean, it's it's him writing through Marlowe's words. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is. Um, then the next group of people. Um, so I tried to I've tried to section my collection into 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 sections which mean something. So the first lot is the people who um, who've got excited about travelling before they've even gone anywhere. And the next lot are the people who've gone off in the same circumstances as you in 1972 and just got excited once they were there. And for me, the, the, the one that most enthralls me, which was fairly new to me, was Nicolas Bouvier. Have you come across, come across him?
2: Uh, tell me what he wrote. He
1: was a Swiss guy who left Zurich, I think, in uh, about 1952. And as an 18 or 19 year old, and drove through Turkey and then Iran. And let me just find, I've got a lovely quote from, from Bouvier somewhere. It sort of sums up the whole of, of, uh, of the traveling. Something grows and loses its moorings, so that the day comes when none too sure of ourselves, we nevertheless leave for good travelling outgrows its motives it proves sufficient in itself you will think you are making a trip but soon it is making you or unmaking you so he's arrived uh, in eastern Turkey and he's, he's, they're staying camping out for the night time passed in brewing tea, the odd remark cigarettes, then dawn came up, the widening light caught the plumage of quails and partridges and quickly I dropped this wonderful moment into the bottom of my memory, like a sheet anchor that one day I could draw up again. You stretch, pace to and fro, feeling weightless, and the word happiness seems too thin and limited to describe what has happened. In the end, the bedrock of existence is made up not of family or work or what others say or think of you, but of moments like this when you are exalted by a transcendental power that is more serene than love. Life, life dispenses such moments parsimoniously. Our feeble hearts could not stand more.
2: That's, that's certainly poetic. <laughs> And of course, that's an interesting region. I I went through that region in 72 when we were on the hippie trail and we came back through that region again a few weeks ago on the the Silk Road, Um, coming across from Iran and then coming to Erzurum and it's a you know it's a magic region. You've got Mount Ararat just up north of you and How did you cross into Iran? You came through Ashgabat. At, at, yeah, uh, from Turkmenistan and yeah. we crossed down to Mashhad. Oh, so yeah. th- 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 that, and that's really where the two trails joined because in 72 we went from Mashhad and into Afghanistan and this time we came down from Turkmenistan and hit Mashhad that way. You weren't tempted
1: to turn left and go to Herat?
2: Oh, I certainly thought about it, but we had, we had a schedule to keep to. And then go up to the minaret... Of jam. Or did you which, do that when you... I, I did that in um, about 10 years ago. I, you know, when, when I, I'd i never heard of the Minaret of Jam until I was there in 72. And I think I saw this Afghan tourist office poster of it and sort of thought, you know, as anybody does, you know, where is that? Yeah. I want to see that. Yeah. And finally, I got there 10 years ago and I, I just thought it was amazing. Just a, the, the one of the am- amazing places of my lifetime. Can you climb it? Oh, absolutely. And, and you, you climb it and there's actually... Two um, spiral stairways which contra-rotate, so they they go in opposite directions. One goes clockwise and one anti-clockwise, and they meet finally at the top.
1: But uh, do they know what was there? Before? I mean, there is the minaret, which has got to be part of a major complex. You, but you, there's nothing else there. There's
2: nothing else there at all. You know what it is like. It's like the Qutab Minar in Delhi or just outside of Delhi. Mm. It looks very similar in lots of ways, but it's this complete isolation. You know the Katab Minar has got the whole city of Delhi 10 minutes away, whereas the Minaret of Jam has got nothing hundreds of kilometres away.
1: But in the 13th century, it was built 13th century?
2: Yeah, that's sort of day. I mean, it,
1: then there must have been... It a, must have been
2: a mosque there, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. And more. And
2: where is it now? It's gone. Yeah.
1: Marvellous. There is something that was being built there at the same time, as Sharj Cathedral. It's worth...
2: Mm. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's
1: amazing. It is. Um, so... In our group of, of the travellers who got excited, the un- another one who, who was new to me was Henry Miller. I'd always known of Henry Miller as Tropic Capricorn. Well, it's
2: I mean, tra- books. travel, we w- isn't it? At
1: school, we weren't allowed to read them because they were too sexy.
2: <laughs> now, now, who is the other Moroccan writer? Um, Paul Bowles, of oh, course. Paul Bowles, yeah. There's a, but there's another one who um, who wrote um, Naked... William Burroughs. And yeah. um, I, I remember I went to... Um, to Tangiers once, and stayed in the hotel where he, where Burroughs stayed and wrote. And then, yeah. after I checked in and got my room, discovered I was in the room that he stayed in and and wrote. You know, and that that's that's kind of magic. That's a that definitely has a magic feeling.
1: The nineteen uh, fifties with Bowles and his and and his cronies in Tangier must have been a magnificent time. Oh term, yes, yeah. a ma- magic era. But I tell you the of of that. Maghreb writing the absolute outstanding one for me is Isabel Eberhardt because She's, you know, everyone knows about her through Leslie Blanche's book, *The um, Wild Shores of Love*. But her, the, what she wrote, age twenty-five or thirty, about living in in Algeria and discovering the kif den. She went down, and so she behaved. She was she was a transgender in effect because she lived as a man um, in order to be able to 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 get on in Arab society. But she writes so beautifully. It's very difficult to find that writing. Have you?
2: no scenes. I'm not familiar with her at all but the yeah. the whole thing of, um, of women writers in the the Arab world yeah. I find fascinating and um, I'm I'm con- the, the names of the writers going out of my head right now but um she a woman who who wrote um was it nine parts of desire um she's she's written a number of books she's won a Pulitzer Prize for one of her books and yep. uh, one of her views was yep. that as a woman you were sort of you were treated as an honorary male so you were able to you know interact with male society as a writer but also you were you were a woman so you also had this access to the women's side of society yep. that a male writer would never have have access to. So they really have a much better, much wider perspective than any male writer can have.
1: I think Rosita Forbes, that we were talking about before, yeah. um, is, is in that category. In that same category, She, yeah, she managed there, to Weren't yeah. there
2: a lot of them? I mean, yeah. There were a lot of writers, yeah. uh, female writers Did, in that field. Is
1: there something about, I mean, our heroes of the, of, of the travel writing world, particularly in the 19th and a lot of the 20th century... Quite a lot of them are people who were uncomfortable, in a way, with their with their hometown existence from a personal point of view or even a sexual orientation point of view. Well, yeah, I mean, and Lawrence,
2: off they go. Lawrence of Arabia, you know, we'd have to list him as one of those, wouldn't yes, we?
1: Yes. Yeah. And and Thesiger, Yeah. Um, Doughty. Um, a lot of them, the women travellers, Victorian yeah. women travellers.
2: yes yeah,
1: so yeah. many of them. I mean, thank God for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, hooray, hooray, that the, the, they were forced away and can, yes. and can tell us such beautiful things. Um, I just want to um, remind you, because there's one one beautiful piece that you sent to me, and I have a feeling that Anna Briongos, oh, you yes. must have I think you published her, we at, did publish her at Lonely Planet, Lonely Planet.
2: Yeah. but not the original because her, her book was originally written in Spanish and we published the English translation of it but her, the, the little paragraph I often quote is a by Anna Briangos, and it's really why young people should travel and the impact that a first big trip has on the whole gap year thing. Yeah, You know, I mean, lots of people, they spend their gap year just partying, but other people on their gap year really do come to grips with things. And her description of why that is so important, I just thought was fabulous. And and my Spanish is lousy, but having read it in English, I really had to read it in Spanish as well just to appreciate how it was originally written. And she, I just thought, she captured that whole thing about travel when you're young, and I think she said her, your heart's like a sponge. You exactly. know, that you can yeah. you take things in that later on when you get you get older and more experienced and richer. And one of the points she makes is that you know a little bit of poverty really helps. It pushes you a little bit closer to ground level, and you you experience things more intimately. She
1: does. I mean, she's what is I have it here. Um, it isn't the forests. The seas, the rivers, the deserts, the paths, the daybreaks that teaches you these things. It isn't the monuments and museums. It's also the men, the women and the children who live by those paths and in those deserts. It's important to travel when you're young. You travel light, light. And cheap, and your heart is like a sponge. It is beautiful.
2: It is. Yeah, I must it's find perfect. out
1: what that is in Spanish. Yeah,
2: yeah, it is perfect. And she, I think, she really captures that whole thing about youthful travel that I think is so important.
1: A couple of people we haven't mentioned that I wouldn't mind getting your opinion on. I think of all the people that I've been reading in creating this collection, the one that's given me most new excitement is is the pole. Rizard Kapczynski, do you ever? Oh, yes, yes.
2: Um, whose, whose books, you know, are all travel books in some ways. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're essentially political reportage. Yeah. But uh, but they all travel. And of course, he was, an, you know, his his reportage is viewed as being a little bit questionable sometimes, but that really adds to it. Yeah, Because I think a lot of travel writing has an element of fiction in it. But he just had a magic ability to be in the right place at the right time. If there was a revolution about to happen, he'd arrived the week before. He had this sixth sense, the most recent one—one sort of most recent one of his earlier books—but I've just read his book about um, being in Angola as the revolution was kicking off, and another day of life, um, and that was a that was a magic book. But really, all of his books uh, are magic in some fashion.
1: I agree with you about the, about the fiction, and of course, this whole collection is called Scraps of Wool, and uh, people ask why, but it's that very reason, and it's taken from. Um, Uh, uh, a sentence from Jonathan Rabin um, who's talking about travel writing and saying that come on we we know that if you simply wrote the story of your journey it would tend towards the dull Um, but he writes you're collecting together these bits and pieces of a random world that are little more than scraps of wool on a barbed wire fence, there to be collected, spun and woven into the fiction of a book. And, of course, he, and he uses the word fiction, not the word fabric.
2: <laughs> no, so, that, 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 you know, his it, passage to Jenea, his book of Selling Up the Inside Passage is great. Yep. But I really liked his, I think it was more or less his first book, his one about the uh, the Middle East. And I, I read that, and I I'd, I'd never been to D- Dubai. And of course, when he went to Dubai, it was a very different Dubai from the Dubai we know today. But the just the idea of going there and taking the the boats that shuttle back and forth across the um, that water inlet there just you know the whole idea of it turned me on. And I've I've never been back to Dubai that I haven't done that. I've gone out out of the air conditioning and got on one of those boats and across the water from one side to the other.
1: Well, you remember the last paragraph of um, Thesiger's. Uh, Arabian Sands, or the last few paragraphs, and he comes out after his nine months of journey and comes down to this little port where there are people doing fishing and a few sailing boats coming in and out, and one castle, and in the castle lives the sheikh, and somehow he's got an introduction to the sheikh, and he's going to be allowed to go and see him, and he waits for four hours outside the castle, and think he's allowed in, and he describes it, and then at the end, he, and then, <clears throat> he he says, "Well, of course, this is what is now Abu Dhabi." <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I always think of Dubai, which has a you know a similar castle by the by the waterfront, and you, there's a museum there which you can read the whole history of Dubai in aerial photographs. Yeah, you, know, you go back to the early aerial photographs in the 1930s, and Dubai had a population of a couple of hundred, mm. and you just cannot believe that now that it's turned into what it's become.
1: One last book before I ask you a couple of questions um, the 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 little discovery that I liked so much, and I think you probably know it um is because we've got quite a bit of sort of mountaineering and exploration books I've included. Um, a passage out of the ascent of Rumdoodle. Do you
2: know that? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Forty thousand and one half foot high. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it is. What well, I love that. I guess well,
2: mountaineers all love that book. You know, you, you, there, there isn't a mountaineer who hasn't read that book and thought, "Well, this is one of the great history's great climbs." <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I introduced it by just. I'm, I'm really hoping that when people read scraps of wool, they will be, uh, they'll be rushing to. Google to find out where Yogistan is. Yeah. I described it as being a, a landlocked country, 153 miles from the nearest
2: other country. <laughs> of um, course, my, this trip I've just done, I, I've been through one of the only two double landlocked countries in the world. Well, Uzbekistan is one, it, and the other one is Liechtenstein. Oh yes, yeah, which yeah, both yeah. of them surrounded by countries that are also yeah. landlocked. <laughs> <laughs> Let
1: me ask, let me finish by asking you, so we'll do your desert island, your desert island book books. If you had two or three to choose and you were in, only allowed those two or three to take away with you, what would they be?
2: You know, I, I think I'd have. I, I think some of the best travel writing is about not traveling at all. And there's there's quite a move, you know, A Year in Provence is one of the probably the best selling example. Where's he going? He's going around his house in Provence. And the, the book in that genre that I really like is called A House in Bali. And Manifé, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it was his, I think his only travel book. And yeah. he just, he lives in Bali in the 30s and he builds a house and observes life around him and yeah. everything travels to him he doesn't have to go out to to see the places the places come to him and that was a magic book it was it was magic in all sorts of fashions well
1: that that is uh, that is exactly what i should uh, read pico Ear. Yeah, well you know pico ear he's a friend of yours um, <clears throat> having gone and spent two weeks with with now late leonard Cohen in his retreat he came out with this You can go on vacation to Paris or Hawaii or New Orleans three months from now and you'll have a tremendous time, I'm sure. But if you want to come back feeling new, alive and full of fresh hope and in love with the world, I think the best place to visit may be nowhere. Says something to us travellers.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's 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 certainly a lot to be said for that. I've I've always said you know one of my favourite destinations is the airport departure lounge because you you're going somewhere you know you're you're there and you're thinking well where am I going to be tomorrow or, what's going to happen? There was a for a long time my my favourite hotel in the whole world was the Amari Airport Hotel in Bangkok. It's it's now the second airport in Bangkok, yeah. and it was right across the road from the terminal. You could actually if you were staying there, you could get up in the morning, go and check your bags in, come back to the hotel and have breakfast and then go back to the airport. But whenever you stayed there, you you were always going somewhere interesting or you'd come from somewhere interesting. And I've I've been in and out through that hotel to Bangladesh, to Bhutan, to Cambodia, to the of course, to you know many places in that region, and that that hotel was always the the jumping off point or the the resting point afterwards.
1: It is. It's it's Bangkok is such a great place. Well, it was your jumping off point for this last big trip.
2: Yeah, that's where we started. Yeah, yeah. right by the sea. Wonderful. And the next the next sea we saw was the English Channel. <laughs> if if you don't count the Caspian Sea or the. <laughs> Well, Tony, th- thank you
1: very much for chatting. This is this is wonderful. I hope I can persuade you to come back again sometime. Oh, Maybe we, we'll get one or two of your fr- fellow travel writers to join
0: us. We could swap tales. Okay. Great. Thanks. Thank you very much, Bill. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support.